Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for First Baptist Church Keller TX in the iTunes Store or in the podcast app on your mobile device. And now here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. The title of the series is Strangers in a Strange Land. Like Daniel and his three friends, we live in a country that's really not our homeland. Our home is in heaven. And so the question is, how can we sing the songs of heaven while we're living in this strange land? The book of Daniel tells us how we can do that. Now, your Bibles hopefully now are open to this fifth chapter of Daniel. We were introduced to the book's namesake along with his three friends in chapter one when they were likely still teenagers. Remember that uh, they were Jewish boys of noble birth who had been prisoners of war. They'd been captured by King Nebuchadnezzar and his army, transported to Babylon into a three-year training program for the purpose of serving Nebuchadnezzar. And speaking of Nebuchadnezzar, he was the common denominator, as we saw in the first four chapters of the book. He was a paragon of pride. Um, He took, in chapter one, the holy vessels from the temple of the Lord. In chapter two... He had a dream of a great statue, and his kingdom, of course, was the golden head. Daniel interpreted that dream, and yet he continued on in his pride, even though God says his kingdom was soon coming to an end. In chapter 3, he built a literal statue on the plains of Dura and passed a law that every time the music played, everyone had to stop what they're doing and bow down to it. And really, of course, this was a, a monument of his own ego. And he threw these boys ultimately to the fiery furnace, but God rescued them. Last week we saw in chapter four, another dream that he had, this time of a large tree, so large that all the animals of the world could uh, eat and be sheltered from storms in it. And this of course was the, the ultimate monument of his pride. And God through an angel sent a message that he was going to chop down the tree. He was going to humble Nebuchadnezzar. And he did that, remember, by removing his senses from him. Uh, He became an insane man for seven years and he lived out in the wilderness alone. And then God brought him back and redeemed him. He ultimately, as we saw at the end of chapter four, confessed God as Lord and repented of his sin of pride. And if Nebuchadnezzar is a prototype of God's humbling a person, leading them to repentance, Belshazzar, who we're introduced here to in chapter five, another king, is an example of someone who refuses to be humbled and the result of such stubbornness. So let's dive right into the text. Verse one, Belshazzar the king held a great feast for a thousand of his nobles and he was drinking wine in the presence of the thousand. Here's a new king. As we come to the fifth chapter of Daniel, many years have passed since the end of chapter four and so had apparently King Nebuchadnezzar. History tells us that when he died, his sovereignty was passed to a man by the name of Nabonidus who's not mentioned here. And so we believe that Belshazzar was actually the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar, who was the son-in-law of Nebuchadnezzar's daughter, and that he was ruling in Babylon in place of his father, Nabonidus. Nabonidus, uh, archaeologists have discovered, went away for 10 years into a foreign land and left this man, who we know as Belshazzar, in charge. And so remember, he says that if you can interpret this handwriting on the wall, Daniel, I'll make you third in command. Well, that's because he was second in command. And so this was the the highest honor that he could give. Daniel had been a trusted advisor and a powerful figure in Nebuchadnezzar's administration. 
But by this time, Daniel's an old man. And as often happens when a new king ascends the throne, he brought in his own staff and Daniel seems to have been forgotten. In fact, that's the title of the message today, The Forgotten Man. Belshazzar, uh, Belshazzar is uh, in his palace and the Medo-Persians are threatening to overrun the city. But rather than uh, getting his armies assembled, he throws a party, even as his enemies are outside the gates. He, he was celebrating the fact that his grandfather had built such a grand fortress, the city of Babylon, he believed it to be impregnable, and therefore he and his kingdom invincible. And so he invites his advisors, his noblemen, and they have a drunken party. And if you read what the historians have to say about these parties of the ancient world, it is likely, almost certain, that all sorts of sexual immorality and drunkenness were involved. Uh, so, so we could describe it as a drunken orgy. Um, as bad as that is, uh, fear not, it gets worse. Look at verse two, when Belshazzar tasted the wine, he gave orders to bring the gold and silver vessels which Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple, which was in Jerusalem, so that the king and his nobles, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. You might remember in chapter one, the very first and second verses of the book of Daniel describe how not only were Daniel and his three friends captured and taken up to Babylon, so were the holy vessels from the temple. And so in an act of defiance and an act of really heresy and blasphemy, he calls for these holy vessels that have been dedicated to the service of Jehovah God to be used uh, as instruments in his drunken orgy. And so verse uh, three says, then they brought the gold vessels and they'd taken out of the temple, the house of God, which was in Jerusalem and the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines drank from, they drank the wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Now this is a Familiar theme, isn't it? We've seen this all before. In fact, this is a pattern of human civilization. And note it says that when he had tasted wine, that means when he was half in the bag. That's the KSV version. He gave orders to bring in the sacred vessels that were stolen from the temple in Jerusalem. That's a familiar theme. It begins with pride. And in pride, it leads to drunkenness and drunkenness leads to bad decisions and bad decision leads to sexual immorality and sexual immorality, its logical conclusion is idolatry. So here are these vessels that were dedicated to the one true God are being used in a ceremony to praise not Jehovah God who created iron and gold and silver, but to praise the gods, these pagan gods of iron and gold and silver and bronze. Reminds us a lot, doesn't it? As we said last week of Romans chapter one, verses 24 and 25, the apostle Paul describing the devolution of the culture because that's exactly what it is. If you went to public school, as I did, you were likely taught that humanity got where it is today because of evolution. That is our ancestors started out in the primordial ooze as single cell amoeba and over time developed a a leg and, and arms and a tail and over time lost the tail and uh, began to stand upright and over millions and billions of years, man became what he is today. That is the opposite of what the Bible says happened. The Bible says when God created man, he said it's good. And rather than evolving upward and better, man has been in a tailspin devolving worse and worse and farther away from God. Paul describes it this way in Romans 1 24, therefore, 
God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them for they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. This is literally what Belshazzar does. He, he takes the worship of the true God, which God has said is good, and he replaces it with the worship of lesser and unholy gods. And it's accompanied with all sorts of sexual immorality and idolatry. And indeed, as Solomon wrote, there is nothing new under the sun. Civilization after civilization has followed that path. But, but there is something new to Belshazzar and his nobles that's about to happen. And I call it here an incredible thing. Look at verse five. Suddenly the fingers of a man's hand emerged and began writing opposite the lampstand on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. And the king saw the back of the hand that did the writing. And then the king's face grew pale and his thoughts alarmed him and his hip joints went out slack and his knees began knocking together. And the king called aloud to bring in the conjurers, the Chaldeans, the diviners. The king spoke and said to the wise men of Babylon, any man who can read this inscription and explain its interpretation to me shall be clothed with purple and have a necklace of gold around his neck and have authority as third ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the inscription or make known its interpretation to the king. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed. His face grew even paler and his nobles were perplexed. This is an incredible thing. Handwriting on the wall. A, a disembodied hand is literally writing on the plaster of the room in which he was throwing this drunken party. That terminology, handwriting on the wall, has been part of our English vernacular for hundreds of years. It simply means something that's a prediction of something else that's certain to happen. Something that produce, uh, predicts a future event with great clarity is called handwriting on the wall. And of course, it's taken from Daniel 5. Make no mistake, th this was the hand of God. One famous sermon on this text was titled Divine Graffiti. But God didn't write some popular political slogan on the wall. He wrote judgment on Belshazzar and the entire Babylonian empire. And though Belshazzar couldn't make out the words on the wall, he was sober enough to discern that it was bad news. We know that because uh, of how he is described. The blood rushed out of his face. His legs went limp. His knees started knocking. He did what lost people do. They use every available resource to them to try to get themselves and extricate themselves from this problem. He calls in the diviners and the magicians. And by the way, why did these guys still have a job? In all four chapters, they're called in and they strike out every time. And yet they still have a job. And just like his grandfather did, he calls them in for a solution. And they failed yet again. And then he began to make great promises. This is what people who are really desperate do. They begin to make great and grand promises to anyone who can get them out of the problem. He says, look, if you solve this problem, I'm going to give you gold and, and a nice suit of clothes and you're going to be third in command just under me. And so what do we have here is a man who has failed to learn from his own nation's history. His grandfather did the same thing, made the same promises came up empty just, just as he did. He, he knew the story. I'm quite certain of his grandfather's insanity and how he was restored after he repented. But friends, failure to learn from history is nothing new. That's what's going on in our land today. 
And as Christians, we dare not make that mistake. Do you know what Paul wrote in Romans chapter 15, verse 4? Speaking of the Old Testament, he says, these things were written down for our benefit. We need to write down and remember things that we did wrong in the past and talk about them often, not ignore them or erase them from history, because if we don't, we're bound to repeat them again. And it was two generations later, and they're right back where they started as a nation. My friend Bart Barber is a historian, and he wrote this week that we need to understand that history is the exchanging of one set of injustices for another. That's what history is. And remember that this is exactly what the dream predicted, that Babylon was going to be replaced by the Medo-Persians, and the Medo-Persians were going to be replaced by the Greeks, and the Greeks replaced by the Romans. And here is that transition. The Medo-Persians are outside the gate threatening to get in, and he's having a party. Now look at verse 10. The queen entered the banquet hall because of the words of the king and his nobles. The queen spoke and said, O king, live forever. Do not let your thoughts alarm you or your face be pale. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And in the days of your father, illumination, insight, and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods and are found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father, the king, by the way, that means forefather, the king appointed him chief of the magicians, conjurers, Chaldeans, and diviners. And this was because an extraordinary spirit, knowledge and insight, interpretation of dreams, explanation of enigmas, and solving of difficult problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. And let Daniel now be summoned, and he will declare the interpretation. Here's a wise queen. She's not at the party. That's the first way I know she's wise. But she hears what's going on, and likely someone got her out of bed. And this is likely Belshazzar's grandmother. We would call her the queen mother, probably Nebuchadnezzar's daughter. She remembered Daniel, the man that the rest of history had forgotten. And by the way, thank the Lord for folks who remember former generation. I remember just a few years ago, we had three ladies here in our church, and they used to sit right there where Brother Ted is. And they sat by each other, all three of them, every week. And uh, they were all within one year of being the same age. And I had the privilege of preaching all three of their funerals. Um, the one who died first was 99, and the oldest lived to be 102. And I've often thought about those ladies that when they died at 100 years old, a hundred years earlier on the day of their birth, their parents likely knew someone who was a hundred years old. And that person's parents on the day of their birth likely knew someone who was a hundred years old. You know what that tells us? We are only three people removed from George Washington. And only five people removed from Martin Luther. And only 20 people removed from Jesus Christ. And we think we're so different and so sophisticated, but the truth is we're just people. And this man, Belshazzar, was a person. He was a sinner. And he had a wise grandmother, I believe, and she remembered Daniel. And yet we continue to value youth above all. Uh, when I was a boy, which is getting to be a long time ago, the leaders in our land were World War II veterans. The principals of our schools, our mayors, congressmen and women, but today they're almost all gone. In fact, as far as I know, we only have one World War II veteran left in our entire church. 
And, and the lack of understanding of that history is a dangerous thing because as Solomon said, again, there's nothing new under the sun. Humans keep making the same mistakes generation after generation and each generation thinks that it's original. And this woman knew that was not the case. She knew that her grandson was making the same mistake of her father. And so what does she say in verse 11? There is a man. Do you remember what Daniel said when he first interpreted Nebuchadnezzar's first vision? There is a God in heaven. And here now is God's representative on earth, Daniel. And she remembers there is a man in your kingdom in whom is a spirit of the holy gods. That, that had not changed. He's nearly 70 years into his ministry career and they're still describing him the way they did when he was 19. The spirit of the gods is within him. Not just the gods, but the holy gods. Daniel's God is holy. And the gods of Babylon are profane. And she knows it. Verse 13, then Daniel was brought in before the king and the king spoke and said to Daniel, are you that Daniel who is one of the exiles from Judah, whom your father, the king brought from Judah? Now I have heard about you, that a spirit of the gods is in you and that illumination inside extraordinary wisdom have been found in you. Just now the wise men and the conjurers were brought in before me that they may read this inscription and make its interpretation known to me, but they could not declare the interpretation of the message. But I personally have heard about you that you are able to give interpretations and solve difficult problems. Now, if you are able to read the inscription and make its interpretation known to me, you will be clothed with purple and wear a necklace of gold around your neck and you will have authority as the third ruler of the kingdom. And then Daniel answered and said before the king, keep your gifts for yourself or give your rewards to someone else. However, I will read the inscription to the king and make the interpretation known to him. O king, the most high God granted sovereignty, grandeur, glory, and majesty to Nebuchadnezzar, your father, because of the grandeur which he bestowed on him, all the peoples, nations, and men of every language feared and trembled before him. Whomever he wished to kill and whomever he wished he spared alive and whomever he wished he elevated, whomever he wished he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit became so proud that he behaved arrogantly, he was deposed from his royal throne and his glory was taken away from him. He was also driven away from mankind and his heart was made like that of beast and his dwelling place was of wild donkeys. He was given grass to eat like cattle and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until he recognized the most high God is ruler over the realm of mankind and that he sets over it whomever he wishes. Yet you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, even though you knew all this, but you've exalted yourself against the Lord of heaven and they have brought the vessels of his house before you and you and your nobles, your wives and your concubines have been drinking wine from them you've praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see, hear, or understand. But the God in whose hand are your life breath and all your ways you have not glorified. This is a divine reckoning. Here's Belshazzar, even as his enemies are outside the gate, even as God has written his fate on the wall, is still trying to pretend that he's in charge of the situation. He's using flattery and empty promises and Daniel is not impressed. He says, Daniel, I, I, I can give you anything in the world you want. And Daniel says in verse 17, keep your gifts. Do you remember what Daniel said when he first was introduced to Nebuchadnezzar when he interpreted his first dream? 
He said, O king, live forever. And he used a lot of uh, flowery language, but I have noted, and maybe you have too, in observing many senior adults, that when you get to a certain point in your life, a certain age threshold, you, you don't bother anymore with small talk <laughs> or social graces. You just say what's on your mind. And Daniel says, keep your gifts. Let's get down to business. I will read the inscription and make its interpretation known. Daniel knew what this was all about. Pride. The same sin of his grandfather, his grandfather, lifting oneself up, taking the glory that God reserves for himself. Verse 23 says, but the God in whose life, breath are all your ways, you have not glorified. That is the ultimate rebellion, trying to steal the glory that God deserves. This is the reason for the handwriting on the wall. Speaking of the handwriting, let's look at it now. Verse 25, he says, now this is the inscription that was written out. Mene, mene, tikal, uparzen. And this is the interpretation of the message. Mene, God has numbered your kingdom and put an end to it. Tikal, you have been weighed on the scales and found deficient. Peris, your kingdom has been divided and given over to the Medes and the Persians. Numbered, numbered, too light, divided is what it literally means. The image there is of scales. They didn't have to have digital scales in those days. They had weighted scales. And, and when you wanted to see if something measured up, you tried to balance the scales. And if it was too light, it would be like this. And that is the image of Nebuchadnezzar's life and ministry. It was too light. It fell short. Shelf, it fell short in holiness. It fell short in justice. fell short in righteousness. And friends, is that familiar to anybody? That is the assessment of every human being, according to Romans 3.23. For we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. He's, you're too light. He thought that he was weighty and significant, and he's about to find out that's not the case. And unlike with his grandfather, who was given opportunity opportunity to repent, God in his sovereignty decides now's the time of judgment. This is an immediate fulfillment. And by the way, God does not owe us 50 years of rebellion before he judges us. I've often said every time we sin and breathe another breath, it's a manifestation of God's mercy. That's true. He does not owe to any of us, let alone this wicked king, a long life. Here's an immediate fulfillment of this judgment. Verse 25, then Belshazzar gave orders and they clothed Daniel with purple and put a necklace of gold around his neck and issued a proclamation concerning him that he now had authority as the third ruler of the kingdom. By the way, this kingdom is going to last about three more minutes. This is like being named first mate of a ship that's about to go under the water. And that same night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was slain. And so Darius the Mede received the kingdom at the age of 62. An immediate fulfillment. There were meaningless rewards and titles, and Daniel already knew they were meaningless. That's why he said, you keep them. And, and by the way, this title was not his to give anymore. God had already said, your sovereignty has been taken away and given to another, this uh, Darius the Mede. And by the way, this is the same Darius the Mede that throws Daniel in the lion's den. 
Remember what Dr. Barber said? History is one injustice replacing another. So true. The Medo-Persians were outside the walls, but remember the, the city had a, had a large wall around it they thought was impregnable. And they said, well, you'll you cut off the water. Well, the Euphrates River had been channeled to run right under the wall of the city. So they always had drinking water. And so what do the Medes do? Well, they were gifted in the art of engineering. And in the middle of the night, they dammed up the Euphrates and redirected the water into a swamp. And when the water level was low enough to walk on, they marched right under the wall of the city. And historians tell us, took Babylon without a spear being thrown. They just walked into the city and said, we're in charge now. And they walk into the king's party and put him to death on the spot, apparently. There wasn't even a battle. The Babylonian Empire was over. But Daniel's ministry was not. We still have seven more chapters about Daniel. Kings and kingdoms come and go, don't they? But if you're God's man, you'll survive that. God's woman, you'll survive that until he's ready to call you home. God wasn't finished with Daniel yet. So uh, th there's some things I'd like to say in conclusion about this fifth chapter of Daniel. And by the way, this is historical narrative. For many years, the liberal theologians taught that Daniel could not possibly have been historically accurate because the man Belshazzar did not exist. The archaeologists Archaeologists had never found any evidence of anyone named Belshazzar existing. So they said Nabonidus followed Nebuchadnezzar, so Daniel must be mythology. Until one day an archaeologist is dusting off a piece of old stone and they find the name Belshazzar and find that his father Nabonidus had vacated the throne for 10 years and left him in charge right about this time. And so we don't have to defend the Bible. From attacks. You know, Charles Spurgeon said, how do you defend the Bible? You, you defend the Bible the same way you defend a lion. You open the door and let it out. So th this actually happened. History has confirmed this. But there's some things that we must learn. As Paul said, these were written down for our benefit. And one of the benefits that we should get from studying the book of Daniel as history is that it ought to cause us to be humble, to not make the same mistakes of the Belshazzars of the world. The Bible says, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God and he will exalt you in, in due time. The Bible is full of warnings against arrogance and pride. Pride goeth before destruction, the Bible says. God resisteth the proud, but gives grace to the humble. In fact, a prerequisite to salvation is Humility. We must come on God's terms. I've often said here with empty hands and outturned pockets. Lord, have mercy upon me, the sinner. Just as Nebuchadnezzar tried to, to buy his freedom. We see this in the New Testament where this magician tried to buy the Holy Spirit from Peter. And Peter said something very similar that Daniel did. Your silver perish with you. You keep the silver. I'm on the Lord's side. There are those today that think they can win heaven through giving away enough money or doing enough good deeds or saying the right prayers in the right order. The Bible says that salvation is by grace through faith. 
not of works. It is a gift of God. And so let history humble us in our own time. Second thing I, I see here is that every breath that God gives us is an act of mercy. He does not owe us a long and healthy life. Even Christians are not promised that. What we're told to do is to redeem the time. Make the most of our time on earth knowing that we're going to give an account to God one day about how we spent every moment. In fact, the Bible says every idle word from our mouth will be judged. And that reminds us thirdly that one day it will be everlasting too late to repent. Theologians often say we live now in, in, in the church age and others say we live in the age of grace. And that's true. When Christ ascended back into heaven from the Mount of Olives, he had given to his disciples this great commission. Their job was to go and make disciples of, of all nations. That is to proclaim the good news gospel that Jesus died for sinners and that whoever will could be saved. And we're still 2000 years later are living in that time from Christ's ascension until his second coming. But friends, we're 2000 years closer to that event than we were then. And we don't know when Christ will return. We know this, there's only one world empire left on that statue that has not come and gone. That's the one represented by the feet, which were iron and clay mixed together. And when that world empire is defeated, that's when Jesus, I take it, will set up his eternal kingdom. He's ruling and reigning today in the hearts and lives of his people. One day, Paul says in Philippians, every knee will bow. I take that literally. Of things in heaven and earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. But one day, that window of grace will be shut, and it may be today. Fourthly, senior adults, let me say something to you. I know most of you are watching by television today. God is not done with you. You may not be able to get out of your house. You may not be able to teach a class like you once did, but you can pray. And the rest of us are depending upon you to pray and to seek the Lord for mercy and for wisdom during these days. And, and one day it may be that God will give you another opportunity to do those things that you once did. But until he calls you home, God's not done with you. Don't stop the fight. Don't stop running the race. And then to young people, I would say to you, don't make the mistake of Belshazzar. Learn from history. Don't erase it. Don't, don't pretend it didn't exist. Study it so that you don't make the same mistakes. God gave us the Old Testament. And, and by the way, every time he did something great for his chosen people, he made a memorial to it. They put rocks from the Jordan River in the Ark of the Covenant. They put the manna from heaven in there. They put Aaron's rod in there. Why? So that future generations would remember the greatness and the glory of God. And may we never forget the greatness and the glory of God. Learn from history. And then to all of us, just what I said earlier, time is short. Jesus is coming soon. There's only one empire left. And that empire may be forming or may be in existence today. We don't know. But when it is ultimately finished, 
Jesus Christ will rule forever and ever and ever. Amen. And what about you? Whose kingdom are you in? See, the Bible talks about two kingdoms. We love to rank and sort and categorize ourselves into dozens and hundreds of different categories. The Bible doesn't do that. The Bible gives us two broad categories. There's the sheep and there's the goats. They're citizens of the kingdom and those who are outside of the kingdom. They're citizens of the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of God's dear son. There's the lost and there's the saved. There are those who are entering through the small gate and following the narrow path that leads to heaven. And then there's everybody else. What about you? Are you in the kingdom? You can be. You say, how, pastor? By faith. Salvation is by grace. It's a gift of God by faith in Christ and what he's accomplished. Remember I said you can't do enough or give enough. All you can do is receive through faith what Christ has already done. Nothing else is necessary. He lived a perfect life that you couldn't live. He died a sacrificial death in your place. And he rose victorious over death through his resurrection. The Bible says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. That's how you enter into Christ's eternal kingdom. My prayer and hope is that everyone listening by television, everyone in the loft, everyone in the gym, everyone in this room, before you go home today, will make certain that you're in the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for your word. Thank you for this story of Daniel. And so encouraged. Here's a man that spent his whole life and he was uh, steady as a raindrop. Who he was as a teenager was who he was when he was 80. Lord, I pray you'd raise up more like him. Father, thank you for these three men who stood before us today in their 20s. Thank you, Father, that in every generation you are raising up your chosen ones. And Father, I pray that uh, you'd raise up more. Right here, Father, I pray that you'd call pastors and teachers and missionaries, Christian business men and women, those who would enter into public service, Lord, and influence this nation for Christ. And Father, I pray for our church family. I, I, I pray, even though it's 138 years old this year, Lord, that we would not grow weary, that we'd learn the lessons of the past, both good and bad. Pray we'd learn from our ancestors who, who made it through two world wars and the Great Depression with their faith intact. And Lord, we wouldn't allow a little virus to disrupt the fellowship here. Father, I pray for one in this room today who may not know you in the free pardon of sin. Lord, I would pray that you would convict their hearts of sin and justice and your righteousness. I, I pray by your spirit, Lord, you would grant faith and repentance to some here today. And Father, when that happens, we're going to be very careful to give you all the praise, honor, and glory. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. 
To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.